0: To episode two of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self help, and related subjects. Here's a short clip from today's main interview
1: It's about working together to create meaning and help them uncover those those unconscious things. and, And I think the other thing to mention is the importance, particularly in psychodynamic therapy, of the relationship. Between the therapist and the client, and I think because it demands the client to open up a lot and share a lot of their life experiences, I think it's important to build trust and for the client to feel really comfortable in the relationship.
0: That clip featured Dr. Susie Christensen, who actually came here to be interviewed live in the Inside Your Head Attic Studios. Uh, Quite a strange occurrence in these days of Skype and Zoom calls, I'm sure you must be aware. But it made for a really interesting interview. Uh, Susie shares something in common with uh, Dr. Lawrence Baldwin, who we interviewed in episode one, uh, because her PhD is actually in... a Totally different subject to the one that she now does for a living, although there is a kind of relationship there, as you'll hear. Uh, Susie actually got her PhD uh, as uh, uh, an English literature graduate at. Um, King's College in London. Uh, but the subject matter of her uh, PhD made her so interested in uh, neurology and psychiatry that she decided to chance her arm at becoming a therapist herself. And she is indeed now a fully qualified psychodynamic psychotherapeutic counsellor. And she works at a large clinic in down here in Brighton and Hove. So uh, Susie uh, was a great guest. We covered quite a lot of subject matter. Some of it was simply explaining what she does for a living and what the difference is between the kind of therapy that she offers and some of the other therapies that you can uh, find out there if you need uh, talking therapies of one kind or another. So we talked about that. Uh, We also talked about um, some really interesting stuff based on her... PhD, actually, her love of stories and how we all, of course, have stories about our own life, but also how creating a story uh, with Uh, The client, the the therapist can help a client create a story of their life that helps it to make much more sense. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Um, And we also, along the way, learn a little bit about the famous uh, if you like grandfather of psychiatry Sigmund Freud, uh, which actually sent me scuttling off to do some reading myself about uh, Sigmund Freud um, and but that will have to be talked about in more depth another time. So, anyway, the interview with Susie will be coming along shortly after my little introduction here. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Uh, Also, before I go any further, a reminder that as some of you have already been doing with episode one, right at the other end of the show after the main interview, you can carry on listening uh, because there we'll be doing our relaxation on the beach guided meditation. And I've got a brand new one lined up for you for today Uh, I had a really good response thank you very much indeed a number of messages about the very first introductory relaxation on the beach session which was basically uh, demystifying the process of Meditation for beginners, or also also, it could be seen as giving a refresher course to people who have done some meditation before but might not have done any for quite some time. Uh, So that seemed to go down well. Thanks very much for the feedback on that. And again, uh, I shall be making that available as a separate download, just kind of 10 or 15 minute download, uh, as well as tagged onto the end of this full length broadcast. So, uh, what do I want to talk about today? Well, one of the things that uh, we mentioned uh, in our in our chat together, Susie and I, uh, there's a thing called attachment, which in psychology has uh, rather a specific meaning, and uh, attachment theory was first um dreamt up by a chap called John Bowlby uh, when uh, psychologists and psychiatrists were looking at the relationship between, children and their mothers we was it was looking specifically at that kind of uh, maternal relationship with a child and there are a number of really interesting kind of tests that were dreamt up such as you know the uh, situation where a child is presented with a surprising situation where they're in a room with their mother Mm -hmm. and the mother just gets up and walks out and then returns Um, A few minutes later, and they looked at how did the child react when mummy left the room? What was their reaction then? And how did the child react when mummy returned? And some very interesting observations were made about that, which helped people to understand the kind of bonding process between mother and child fascinating stuff. Now, in more recent years, this kind of attachment theory has been applied to adult relationships. And today I'm going to be looking at one book in uh, in particular, a specific book, uh, which I'll obviously put a link to in the show notes on the website. The book is called Attached. Uh, Are you anxious, avoidant, or secure? How the science of adult attachment can help you find and keep. Love, And this is, was written by Dr. Amir Levine and Rachel S.F. Heller M.A. And if I do noisily flick through, I can see that this was first published by Penguin, in fact, in 2010, and then reprinted again. I've got the paperback edition published in 2019 by Bluebird, uh, which is part of Pan Macmillan. I would say, you know, don't be put off... Because when you first pick up this book, it's 200 and something, nearly 300 pages. Uh, Do not be deterred. It is packed full of fascinating stuff. Why did I pick up this book? Well, it just so happens a uh, really good friend of mine is a social worker who deals with uh, adoption and fostering and families and that kind of stuff and so she had done a lot of work on attachment theory of course in the co- in, in the process of doing her job very useful to be able to walk into a family situation and uh, be able to kind of see how that relationship works within that family between the child who's potentially going to be you know adopted or fostered whatever um, and it's potential parents and it's actual parents, you know, you get an idea of that child's history and background. Really, really interesting and important stuff. And, uh, of course, now in, in later life, we can look at uh, our own relationships, whether that's with our life partner or perhaps with a family member or as in my case with my closest friend really good friend and you know we got very interested in looking at what the nature of our attachment was. It's one of those things that close friends do is like oh this we could have known each other for a very long time And um, I was uh, initially kind of horrified to discover that the, the kind of... Uh, personality type that i am uh, wasn't what i expected i'll be honest it wasn't exactly what i wanted to hear <laughs> initially but there we are we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that and it's the the core of attachment theory is that there are three primary Attachment types. In fact, there are four, and I'll talk about that shortly. Because there's uh, different scales, and the um, other important thing to remember is, just because at any one point in time, in any, in relation to any one particular relationship, you may be analysed as being of one of these particular types, this is not set in stone. It's not like, aha, you're fixed in that position and tough luck. That's it. There's nothing you can do about it. Actually, there's a lot you can do about it by working on yourself and working on the relationship, working on the relationship in conjunction with the other person involved in the relationship. So th- this is uh, one of the things that I came to realize and actually ha- was extremely helpful for me personally in My journey, I mean, I've already explained in episode one and in the Welcome Introduction uh, short podcast that uh, my journey involved being diagnosed with cancer back in the autumn of 2019 and then being put on, uh, immediately being put on a particular drug called Prostap, which... Uh, alters your personality as a middle-aged guy and prostate cancer tends to affect middle-aged guy you suddenly find yourself undergoing some very strange changes and so that affected my personality but also revealed a great deal more about my underlying character it's complicated stuff folks reading up on this attachment theory uh really helped me understand where I was, where I was going wrong, what I was potentially doing that was damaging the relationship with my best friend. So let me just briefly give you an insight into the three main uh, attachment types. And I'm reading this straight from the book. This is from page 44 to 45 of Attached. So, Anxious. You love to be very close to your romantic partners and have the capacity for great intimacy. You often fear, however, that your partner does not wish to be as close as you would like him or her to be. Relationships tend to consume a large part of your emotional energy. You tend to be very sensitive to small fluctuations in your partner's moods and actions and although your senses are often accurate, you take your partner's behaviours too personally. You experience a lot of negative emotions within the the relationship and get easily upset. As a result, you tend to act out and say things you later regret. If the other person provides a lot of security and reassurance, however, you are able to shed much of your preoccupation and feel contented. So that's the anxious personality. Secure. Being warm and loving in a relationship comes naturally to you. You enjoy being intimate without becoming overly worried about your relationships. You take things in stride when it comes to romance and don't get easily upset over relationship matters. You effectively communicate your needs and feelings to your partner and are strong at reading your partner's emotional cues and responding to them. You share your successes and problems with your mate and are able to be there for him or her in times of need. And finally, the avoidant attachment style. It's very important for you to maintain your independence and self-sufficiency and you often prefer autonomy to intimate relationships. Even though you do want to be close to others, you feel uncomfortable with too much closeness and tend to keep your partner at arm's length. You don't spend much time worrying about your romantic relationships or about being rejected. You tend not to open up to your partners, and they often complain that you're emotionally distant. In relationships, you're often on high alert for any signs of control or impingement on your territory by your partner. So, if you've been sitting there nodding along to any of those, well, that's probably giving you a clue either about your own attachment style or maybe the attachment style of someone you know well. And what is really... uh, Important here is to n- understand that these are not absolutes, that it is a sliding scale, and it also depends on the individual w- with whom you are involved, whether in a, a deep and long standing friendship or as a lover, and so forth. Uh, in fact, there is a really useful diagram they put in the book on page 46, which is to do with the two attachment dimensions. And if you can imagine two crossing lines uh, and from top to bottom, uh, at the top, you have low avoidance at the bottom. You have high avoidance over on the left. You have low anxiety and over on the right. You have high anxiety and that creates kind of four quarters. And in the top left quarter, where you've got low anxiety and low avoidance, that's the secure quarter. Over on the top right, where you have low avoidance but higher anxiety, that's the anxious, also known as ambivalent style. Down in the bottom left, where you have low anxiety and high avoidance, well, you have the no surprise the avoidant style and to the right of that in the bottom right hand corner where you have high avoidance and high anxiety that's what's known as an anxious avoidant style which is more rare because most people from what i understand tend to fall into the either secure anxious or avoidant categories now i'm sitting here talking and thinking of a number of people I know, and I can pretty much immediately pop them into one of those three categories. I can actually think back to someone in the past I knew a long time ago, who I now realise, whoa, yes, they were anxious and avoidant. Um, But let's have a look then at you know, how do you tell what kind of attachment style uh, someone has? Now, the book uh, is brilliant. It's full of questionnaires and things that you can go through and put down your answers and then tot up your score. And that reveals whereabouts on those scales either you are or the person you're thinking about is. Um, and quite usefully, and this I'm just going to uh, take a look at this um, in the short time we have. They do have uh, a really useful table on pages sixty-five to sixty-six, which is cracking others' attachment style cheats sheet, which is, we could say, it's a bit of fun. It's actually quite an important bit of fun, and you know, uh, by all means, scribble and make lots of notes. Uh, there will be a transcript of this show up on the website uh, in due course, so you could actually come back and take a look, or just go and buy the book. It's available in all the usual formats, audiobook, Kindle, and the, well, I'm holding a paperback, so there we go. Uh, but let's have a quick look at this uh, very useful table they've got, with three columns, avoidance, secure, and anxious, and a number of characteristics that you would ascribe to that kind of uh, personality, that kind of attachment style. So let's have a look first of all at the avoidant uh, style. Um, An avoidant person tends to send mixed signals in the relationship. They value his or her independence greatly, perhaps above everything else. Uh, They devalue you or your previous partners. They're really good at coming up with put downs. Uh, They use distancing strategies, either emotional or physical. They emphasize the boundaries in a relationship. Uh, They have unrealistically romantic views of how a relationship should be. You know, this is one of those strange uh, paradoxes that they are actually really demanding about how perfect the relationship should Be. Uh, they are often mistrustful. They fear being taken advantage of by their partner. They often have a rigid view of relationships and they have uncompromising rules around relationships. Uh, during a disagreement, uh, they often need to get away from the argument or they explode. Um, they don't make their intentions clear, so they keep you guessing and they usually have enormous difficulty talking about what's going on between you. They really don't like talking about the relationship. Um, looking on the let's swing over to the other side, the opposite of that, the anxious slash ambivalent uh, personality wants a lot of closeness in the relationship. They express their insecurities and their worries about rejection. They're unhappy when they're not in a relationship. They don't like facing the world alone. They often play games to keep your attention or interest. Uh, they have difficulty explaining, however, what precisely is bothering him or her, and they expect you to guess. There's that classic thing is so, how are you, dear? What's the matter? I'm fine. <laughs> So that can leave you thinking, well, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what to think. Um, They often act out uh, their insecurities. Um, They have a hard time not making uh, everything about him or herself in the relationship. They're a bit self-obsessed. Uh, they uh, let you set the tone of the relationship, so they kind of abdicate power in the relationship. Uh, At the same time, they're preoccupied with the relationship and often will ruminate on and on about it. Uh, They fear that small acts will ruin the relationship. Uh, They believe that she or he must work hard to keep your interest. They try too hard, you know. And they're almost always suspicious that you might be unfaithful, even if that's completely groundless. Now, somewhere in the middle, what we all would like to be is secure in our relationship. And the characteristics of a secure person in attachment terms is that they're reliable, they're consistent. If there's a decision to be made, they'll make the decision with you. They'll share that decision-making process. They have a flexible view of relationships. They're not rigid. Uh, They communicate relationship issues well. They can reach compromises during arguments. They're not obsessed about winning. Uh, they are not afraid of commitment or dependency if they're certain that it's the right relationship for them then why not allow it to take its course Uh, they don't view relationships as hard work it's the way relationships are and of course sometimes there is work to be done Uh, they are perfectly happy with closeness and that closeness leads to further closeness Uh, they're Don't be surprised if they introduce you to their family and other friends uh, early on in the relationship because they feel secure about the relationship. They naturally express their feelings towards you, and they don't play silly games. They don't make you guess what they're thinking or feeling. Uh, They just want you to feel at ease around them and for the relationship to be as good as it can possibly be. So that I think is as much as we can cover at the moment, because uh, the book goes into a great deal of detail. It looks at how different combinations of these attachment styles can work together. It, you know, sends out warning flares if uh, it thinks that you know if you if you're a particular attachment style and and you're with someone who's incompatible and that maybe the relationship is never going to be able to be a healthy one for you they give you insights into that that as well it's a fascinating book and it's not at all the kind of glib glossy magazine sort of relationship advice that you might be used to this is really good and helpful stuff and as I say even me as a middle-aged man you know I'm 60 years old now and I have read this book and I just found it very, very helpful. It really helped me to understand where I was going wrong in a couple of key relationships in my life, and it's helped me, enabled me to address that in uh, sensible. Ways and um, has also set me on the path to looking at other aspects of my life as well that kind of contributed to where I was. As I say, I was, you know, I'd. S- I'm not proud. I'm I'm going to be very raw and open on this podcast, and I admit that I realised that I had a number of insecurities. That I was really surprised. <laughs> I'm really surprised at you know the insecurities I had in connection with relationships, and it helped me to see that and to set about looking at why that had happened to me, why I was in that place, and have been on the journey since moving to a. Better, more secure place, um, which has been great for me, and from the feedback I'm getting, it's been good for my uh, nearest and dearest uh, people in my life as well. So that is attached by Dr. Amia Levine and Rachel S.F. Heller. Uh, I thoroughly recommend it. You know, if I uh, giving a review on Amazon. This thing gets five stars. Other books on attachment theory are available. There's uh, one out there that I noticed I've got a copy of somewhere, I think, called The Attachment Workbook, uh, which is very, very good. And there are a number of other books about attachment theory well worth looking at. Um but this one, I would say, is the one, the key one, that I think most people who work in uh, the business, as it were, would say, yeah, that's, that's the one to really pick up and have a look at. So anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening to that Uh, introduction about uh, attachment I hope you found that interesting obviously as with all these little introductions it's a whistle stop tour so much more could be said Uh, and that's a fascinating book I could go on for hours about that but let's move on now to the main interview with Susie Christensen to the main part of Inside Your Head, where I get to interview someone who knows stuff about our subject matter. And today I'm with Susie Christensen, who is a therapist. And uh, Susie, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Henry. Thanks so much for having
0: me. You're extremely welcome. It's great to have you here. And I'll explain to the listeners that if the sound quality is a bit squiffy today, it's because we're crammed into my attic studio space in baking heat. The British weather's taken us by surprise. And uh, it's actually very hot outside. So uh, we are going to be talking literally face to face. Most of the time I get to interview people at a great distance. But today, literally, we're about three feet apart which is an extraordinary experience so thanks very much for agreeing to come and get crammed into the attic Susie. So uh, let's kick off tell us a bit about your uh, education and uh, professional background because you've got a really interesting background Susie you didn't actually uh, start off planning to be a therapist did you? Uh, No I didn't so I
1: started off um doing a PhD in English literature, but it was quite an interdisciplinary thing. I was based in this place, it was at King's College in London called the Centre for Humanities and Health, right. and that was they funded lots of people doing research on kind of interdisciplinary matters. So my research was about English literature from the early twentieth century. Wow. And how it related to psychoanalysis and neurology and psychology at that time. And so as I went through that really I found myself you know of course I still love literature and I loved studying the literature but getting more and more interested really in the psychology and the psychoanalysis in yeah. particular and so as I went through that work I kept thinking oh actually you know I'd quite like to train I'd quite like to become a therapist or a psychoanalyst
0: Wow so of course it begs the question Why were you interested in that kind of subject matter in the first place? What made you want to uh, kind of look at literature through that particular lens?
1: I think it's something about, you know, in all my literary studies, I was always interested in this idea of the self, um, whatever that means, and kind of thinking about how people wrote about themselves and expressed themselves. And I was particularly interested in autobiographical works of literature so i suppose that led me to sort of therapy and psychology and psychoanalysis as yeah. well i'm thinking about ways in which people express themselves um in words and how that might fit into kind of psychological discourses
0: of wow. the time that's absolutely amazing because i think that um that's not necessarily kind of an obvious choice for most people when they think of literature. They tend to think about, you know, themes of romance or themes of death or that kind of thing. So that's really interesting that you kind of took that lead. I mean, is it is it a kind of subject matter that you've been interested in, you know, for a long time before you even started studying? Is it something you'd that if in your childhood, for example, that made you interested in this kind of thing?
1: I don't know. I mean, I always loved books and reading, and I never thought about that consciously in my childhood. But I suppose there was something about that, something of the appeal of books was partly the escapism, but partly being able to see into other people's worlds and see into the ways in which people express themselves or kind of told their stories.
0: That's that's absolutely amazing. Um, Now, You're actually, uh, I gather, a psychodynamic therapist, which uh, I think a lot of people say, wow, that sounds quite intimidating. So could you explain to the audience what that actually means and how does it actually compare to some other popular types of therapy that are available?
1: Sure. So psychodynamic therapy is a kind of modern version, I suppose you might say, of psychoanalysis. Right. Um, and the kind of main idea behind that is that you're helping people alleviate their distress or you know, their psychological problems by uncovering unconscious aspects of their psyche. So right. making people or helping people to become aware of things going on perhaps within themselves that they weren't mm. totally aware of before. And I suppose more traditional psychoanalysis people you know historically or even now in some circles would go five times a week that's quite intense and quite expensive (laughs) also so psychodynamic therapy is normally once a week maybe twice a week but it's sort of using those ideas but and applying them in a slightly less intense way right
0: okay so uh, if you were able to kind of describe for the audience what a typical session might be like, if, if I decided, OK, I've got whatever problems I've got, you know, I've depression, anxiety, uh, you know, I've suffered a bereavement or something of that kind, whatever. Uh, what, what could I kind of expect to happen during a session? I mean, w- w- do I need to walk in your door and lie down on a couch, for example?
1: Well, some people might work with a couch um, you know, I personally don't. I work with people sitting in a chair, you know, sitting opposite me in the room. And yeah. um, you asked a minute ago about how it differs to sort of other types of therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, say, if someone was going for CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, that yeah. that would be perhaps much more directive. There might be worksheets or you might be right. given tasks to do um, or your therapist might direct you to particular things to think about or work on and that's less the case or not at all the case in psychodynamic therapy so a client would would come in and if in a first session if a client came in and said they've got those various problems that you've just mentioned to me I think Mm -hmm. the way I normally start is to ask that person to you know in their own words you know Mm -hmm. tell me why they've come what they're hoping to get from the therapy and and Mm. tell me a bit about themselves and i think normally it's longer term therapy psychodynamic there are short places that offer shorter term um psychodynamic therapy and in that case you'd probably work you know hard in your first session to establish a focus because say Mm. if you've only got six sessions
2: Mm.
1: you'd need to pick a specific thing to focus on but with my clients now it's it's open-ended so it's very much directed by the material that the client brings. Mm. And we would then work together to, to think about what's going on for them and, and, th- and thinking about why. It's about working together to create meaning and yeah. help them uncover those, those unconscious things. And, sure. and I think the other thing to mention is the importance, particularly in psychodynamic therapy, of the relationship relationship between the therapist and the client. And I think because it demands the client to open up a lot and share a lot of their life experiences, I think it's important to build trust and for the client to feel really comfortable in the relationship with their therapist.
0: Yeah. Uh, As someone who's undergoing therapy themselves, I can say to the audience that uh, do not underestimate the importance of finding the right therapist in fact i am with my second therapist i i i started having therapy with a really nice guy lovely guy but there was just something i kind of felt was lacking missing in the rapport uh there's nothing wrong with him he didn't do anything wrong uh very nice guy highly professional but I just kind of felt that there wasn't maybe the level of empathy I was looking for. So I went hunting and found someone else who I'm with now, and uh, she's absolutely fantastic. I mean, we. It's a kind of a cliche word, but you have to kind of click with that person. You have to kind of feel from the moment that you sit down with them that, ah, they get it, right? And I think th- that's something that. Uh, only you can be the judge of, right, Susie? That it's and and there's nothing, uh, you know. There's there's no ill will, you know, to the guy I started with, and and we parted on very good terms, and you know, I, I I wished him well, and he wished me well, and you know, he'd it wasn't that he'd not done anything for me. He what he'd done actually he'd give me a bit of education in the kind of therapy and therapist I think I actually needed you know and there's nothing wrong with that because I think you know I've subsequently met some people who've you know they might be on their third or fourth therapist that that journey to finding the right person who can kind of really get inside your head to use the title of the show that's really critically important isn't it Susie and and um from from a from your side of the fence as it were as a counselor as a therapist uh, uh is is that something that you have to leave that decision to the client about whether you're the right person or not or do you ever feel from your side that you need to advise the client that maybe you ought to look elsewhere maybe we're not the right match how does that go
1: I think it's always up to the client. I would never give them direct advice or tell them what to do. I think Mm. it's important for lots of different reasons for that decision to come from the client. And and that in itself could become part of the work, I think. And say for you, that ability you had to recognize what you needed and to be able to leave. Mm. Perhaps that would be harder for somebody else. And then being able to sort of work towards that themselves I think could end up becoming an important part of their process Mm. so I think it is really important but I think it it needs to be up to that person to the client to decide
0: because I I think uh, for someone who's not had therapy before um, I I just want to explain a bit that one of the things that kind of happens inevitably is in uh, in some ways you become inevitably Attached to your therapist, your therapist becomes what's known as an attachment figure. Um, in the same way as you might be attached to, you know, your husband or wife or a parent or sibling, you know, something. Of best friend, you know, Uh, that word attachment has quite specific meaning in in psychology, doesn't it, Susie? And that's actually a fantastic book called Attached, which I have talked about in the first part of the show, because I think it was uh, something that people ought to be aware of. Um, So that attachment um, is something that is it's quite hard to develop if you've got only a very limited number of sessions, isn't it, Susie?
1: Yeah, or well, certainly perhaps harder and certainly different. And I mm. think, yeah, you know, undoubtedly, the longer you see someone, you're more likely perhaps to build a deeper or different kind of attachment mm. with them. But I suppose another key aspect of psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapies is the idea of transference, which yeah. is all about so that the person the client coming for therapy will perhaps as part of that attachment kind of project onto their therapist mm. ideas about different people in their lives that mm. they've had relationships with. So are they kind of relating to you as if you're their mother
2: yeah.
1: or as if you're their, you know, friend or lover or father or or whatever. And mm. and that can be an important part of what goes on as well is thinking about why are you sort of seeing me as your mother. Yeah. And if you are, then how are you reacting to me? And what's that all about?
0: And of course, this is uh, uh, an area where, as a therapist, you have to tread extremely carefully. Uh, One of the things that I've had a discussion with my therapist on the subject that... um, One of the things that, as a therapist, you have to sign up to is that it's entirely possible in the course of... Giving therapy sessions, uh, you might meet someone who you think, in any other walk of life, any other circumstances, this person could be my friend. But of course, you have to sign up to the fact that that can never happen. That the the relationship between therapist and client is a completely separate entity, mm-hmm. and it what it means is it forbids. Those two people to have contact in any other way uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that because that's I, I that was something that um, you know it just came about because funny I invited my therapist to come on this show and she had to decline mm. um, which at first I was like a bit puzzled about what I just did but uh, on reflection I realized she was absolutely right because it's it's uh, when you uh, um, interact with someone outside that little professional bubble of the therapy room
2: mm-hmm.
0: other stuff can happen other stuff can arise which would mean then that person trying to continue as your therapist would be inappropriate mm-hmm. so do you want to cuz this is kind of an ethical question really isn't it about the client therapist relationship do you want to talk a little bit about that susie uh
1: yeah well i think you're right to say that that's like a really essential part of that relationship and mm. you know, holding those boundaries in place, and that you know that relationship needs to just exist in that space of your therapy session to enable the therapy to take place and to keep it safe mm. for both parties, really. And I think, yeah, holding those boundaries is a really crucial part.
0: Yeah, which it would be challenging because, as you say, you've got you've got this uh, aspect of transference, for example, where uh, the client. Projects onto you as the therapist, potentially, you know, their feelings about their mother, their lover, their friend, whatever it happens to be, you know, Uh, it's it's a really really complex business. We probably haven't got enough time today to delve into all that, but it's making me think. Oh, that's that's potentially subject matter for you know in itself, and and how that happens and how that you know is in a sense part of the therapy. But you've got such an interesting CV. Uh, Let's kind of. talk about uh, in general terms you know the, so you, you're you you give psychodynamic therapy which sounds to me because i'm having a kind of ongoing long-term kind of humanistic person-based counseling and it sounds to me like what you do is kind of related to that similar kind of thing would that be fair
1: yeah certainly similar um lots of similarities and and some differences as
0: well yeah because then there's i mean the range of therapies i drew up a list i've got a little notebook that i have for the show and i thought oh just out of interest i can't have a look at what 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 are the different types of therapy out there oh my goodness me dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens uh some of which you know have mind-boggling names uh some of which are like more familiar and you've mentioned cbt cognitive behavioral therapies psychodynamic therapy ongoing humanistic person-based counseling is basically a talk therapy you know along similar lines where uh the 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 counselor kind of lets you take the lead and reveal what you want to reveal and what i suppose if you're uh, if you're being you know uh, funny but you could say well you, you you're gradually digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole until you realize you've hit something oh yeah we probably ought to talk about that <laughs> you know um but also there's other stuff like uh, gestalt therapy what, what's gestalt therapy susie
1: well i'm no expert in gestalt therapy but from my understanding i think it involves a lot of you know thinking about the body as well or perhaps paying attention to right how somebody moves or, or how they hold themselves. And, oh, right. And sort of paying attention to that oh, wow. as well. But I don't think I'm the best person to talk about that in any way. I depth. need to get
0: a gestalt therapist to come on to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I, another thing that uh, I've, I've come across quite a lot is uh, transactional analysis, TA, yeah. as it's also called. Do you, do you, how much do you know about TA?
1: I know you know a little bit, but again, I'm no expert, but I know that a part of that is thinking about the roles that you get cast into—are yeah. you taking on the role of the child or the role of something else? And yeah. I, I know that in TA,
2: you're kind of working within thinking about yeah.
0: that. I've actually just bought myself a couple of books about transactional analysis. There's a famous book that was written back actually in the late 1960s called Games People Play, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't remember the name, of the author. One of my audience will be shouting at their their. Um, iPhone. I'm sure saying, like, oh, it was written by so and so. I'll have to put that in the show notes. But uh, yes, is uh, funnily enough, I come across transactional analysis when I was doing sales training many, many years ago, and it was all about the parent-child-adult mm. kind of scenario. Uh, and I know that there's not you know, there's the the, the 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 torment of the victim and and the white knight is another way of in- interpreting it in different circumstances, and it can be revealing in certain. Um, Scenarios. Um, I think one of the things about transactional analysis that it kind of red flagged me because I have to confess, as a salesperson, I was taught almost to abuse transactional analysis to force the kind of child role on the client and take the kind of parent role to try and get people to buy stuff, Mm -hmm. which left me feeling, you know, with a really nasty taste in my mouth for a long time. But I now a, you know see that oh actually it can be quite a powerful tool to help people understand situations they may be in particularly if they're in an abusive relationship something of that kind mm. but anyway transaction and many many more and what i'm going to be doing uh, ladies and gentlemen is actually kind of providing a list of different type of therapies and links to things that it would explain different types of therapy to you now You actually work for a counselling service in Brighton, don't you, Susie? Uh, So tell us about uh, the kind of work you do there. And uh, I also gather you've worked for Cruise as a bereavement volunteer, which must have been, you know, gosh, respect you. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, So yeah, tell us a bit about the kind of work you do uh, at this service and and your experience of doing bereavement counselling.
1: So, yeah, I mean, the the kind of work I do now is along the lines that I told you and mm. working longer term with clients to explore all kinds of things that whatever they've come into therapy with, it's, you know, hard to go into much detail of course, because yeah. of the confidentiality of the clients. But it's a great Job and I really love it. Um,
0: so, what what kind of problems are people coming to you with? I mean, what kind of stuff, as it were? Because uh, it's it's a, a counselling service, so there's a number of mm. practitioners there. Mm. I guess So, you know, uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Actually, thinking as a complete outsider, do, 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 does the work come in? You kind of, you know one person grabs it or you have to have different specializations that you think oh well actually that person would be best to to deal with that client or is it literally kind of first come first served how does it actually work
1: um it works so anyone who comes wanting to have counseling will have an assessment right with somebody who will decide decide with them what what the kind of level of qualification of therapist they might work with or what kind of therapy they might want um and then the you know then the clients will get referred out accordingly and also of course who's free at the right times yeah um and then and that's how it works really and there's many types of issues it might be depression anxiety relationship Mm. issues you know, just perhaps a general sense of discontent, anything really.
0: So uh, the other thing is, uh, that's a, a kind of important point, having um, spoken to Lawrence Baldwin in episode one, um, who obviously is, you know, uh, way up the tree in kind of NHS, mental health nursing and that kind of stuff, where uh, people have probably been referred... Often by their GP or something of that kind some people obviously do still self-refer uh, is it the case with this uh, counseling practice that people are self-referring or are you also getting uh, referrals from you know GPS doctors whatever
1: um, they self-refer but I think often they might have been recommended right. by their GP you know to, to come along but yeah. it would be you know up to that person to Make the contact themselves. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, uh, what well, it's great that you do that now. Yeah, the the cruise bereavement counselling. Because, funnily enough, I've got a, another really good friend who is training to be a, a cruise bereavement counsellor, um, which I have enormous respect for. As someone who's suffered bereavement, you know, a, couple, you know, a few times in my life, uh, not to be underestimated. The the benefits that can be derived from that. Um, That must be amongst some of the more intense kind of work that you have to do, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I think um, it can be intense, you know. um, And I think the interesting thing really about working with clients at Cruise and, and also other times is thinking about loss You know, Mm. and obviously you're working with a bereavement and Mm. there's a certain way that at Cruise anyway that Mm. their volunteers are trained to deal Mm. with that. But Mm. thinking about loss more generally as something that I suppose is ubiquitous across people's experiences and lives and and that Mm. was something that was emphasised in the training that I did with them as well there Mm. was a bereavement of, you know, whoever if you've lost a friend or family member mm. perhaps might trigger things to do with other losses yeah. in your life as well and yeah. and i think just sort of thinking about loss in a general sense yeah. um can be helpful
0: yeah uh, and i'm glad you mentioned that because funnily enough i have something i read online uh, just yesterday about uh loss that Uh, We tend to think of loss as a bereavement or a separation or something of that kind. Uh, But it can also be someone losing their job Mm -hmm. or hitting retirement. You know, and the loss there of almost, for a lot of people, what's been the most meaningful part of their life. Or someone who's had some kind of traumatic accident where they've lost a memory or something of that kind. It's a big subject which I'll come back to in a future show, ladies and gentlemen, because I want to move on. I think that uh, there is one th- kind of tie-in I wanted to, 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 to mention with the uh, previous episode, where I was talking to Lawrence, obviously the pandemic, where there's been an awful lot of people who tragically lost a loved one and couldn't be there with them at the end whereas under normal circumstances they would have been at the bedside or whatever and this is something that obviously kind of has affected huge numbers of people across the country is do you have any thoughts about that about kind of how uh how how can people cope with that you know because that's an extraordinary thing and also it's as lawrence was talking about it's kind of sadly, it's been a kind of shared experience for many, many people across the country. And, of course, normally we think of, you know, someone wants bereavement counselling as, oh, they lost their mum, the dad, their wife, their husband, whatever it is, a child, and uh, wants to be able to deal with that. But they've normally, you know, they've been there when it's happened, more or less, or they've been able to go to the funeral and... and, and that's been denied to hundreds of thousands of people around the country do you have any thoughts about that about how how can people approach trying to cope with that sort of trauma
1: well i think it's hard i think it's really awful that so many people haven't been able to be with their loved ones you know mm. when they've died and people haven't been able to have the funerals that they've wanted and like you say all those things are such important parts mm. of going through the experience of losing someone and that Mm. many people have been denied and I think it's incredibly sad and I Mm. suppose I don't really have any apart from being able to acknowledge that sadness and I suppose Mm. acknowledge that loss Mm. the loss of perhaps being able to be with someone or you know grieve in in a way that you might have been able to previously yeah
0: because it, it's kind of about closure isn't it mm. uh i mean one of the issues you know and i'm i'm being completely open about my life in this program one of the issues i face and that i'm having counseling about is that i when my father died when i was very young i wasn't allowed to go to the funeral back in those days oh you didn't take children to funerals uh so i never got closure about my own father's death. And I, you know, it's one of those things that I didn't think about really for the best part of 50 years. And then for all sorts of reasons, it bubbled to the surface. And it's like, ouch, wow, that's powerful stuff. And the notion of closure is uh, is a really important thing, whether it's the end of a relationship, could be the end of just a friendship or something of that kind. Closure is a really important thing to enable people to kind of move on, isn't it?
1: yeah and i think yeah all that ability to fully process the mm. experience you know that you've been through and i think you're right you know that has been denied to people mm. in some ways because of covid and mm. I suppose we're still in early days, and people might need to find help or support yeah, in, yeah. in
0: working And I think that. the thing is the pressure on the system because it's potentially people in very large numbers. I think this is something that we all need to be aware of. That we've thought of, you know, people suffering anxiety and stuff, yeah, and naturally during the COVID pandemic, and uh, how that's uh, building up a bubble that needs to be addressed afterwards. And I think the amount of kind of bereavement counselling that might be needed is significant but let's move on i think uh when people think about psychiatry and psychoanalysis one of the first names that pops into people's heads you know if if anyone who's watched frazier <laughs> back in the day you know it's quite a long time ago now there's probably a whole generation of people who think what who's frazier look it up on youtube folks frazier he was a, it was a comedy show brilliantly written um Uh, with Kelsey Grammer uh, who was a psychiatrist in this show Uh, just fantastic show but Freud that's a name that kind of people tend to immediately associate with uh psychiatry and psychoanalysis not always in a good way I think a lot of people think oh Freud that's all about perversions isn't it and loving your mother and all that kind of weird stuff which is you know he was responsible for a great deal more in the world of psychiatry than just that kind of thing but okay um tell us because you're well up Uh, with kind of Freudian analysis and the history of this kind of stuff. So can you tell us something about uh, his role in the birth of psychoanalysis and uh, because of your specialisation with your PhD that you did, the the literature stuff, its relationship with uh, neurology? Mm. Uh, which I think a lot of people might need explaining as well. So can you tell us something about that? Because it's just a fascinating kind of little facet of your knowledge that I'd really like to kind of share with the outside world.
1: Well, I think before I go into that in any depth, I think it's really interesting, you know, what you say about Freud in that he's you know taken on an idea as kind of a cultural idea that perhaps at times isn't always rooted in... The reality or what he actually wrote you know sometimes it is as well of course but i think the thing that maybe lots of people don't know about freud is that he started off as a neurologist so originally All right, he was a neurologist he was trained as a neurologist and he started off doing research into the sort of nervous systems of i think it was eels i can't oh, really? I remember <laughs> some kind of animal i'm pretty sure it was eels um and so that was his starting point and he and then he started noticing what he thought of as hysterical symptoms in people, or thinking right. about the times when things were wrong with people that didn't have a medical explanation. So right. what, what he meant by a hysterical symptom was say, you know, you've got a pain in your stomach, but all medical checks are saying, there's no biological reason we can notice right. for this." Um, and that was what led him to develop what he. Well, actually, it was named by one of his first clients, The Talking Cure, um, and that idea of talking things through to kind Mm. of bring them out. But going back to him starting off as a neurologist, um, as he then started to develop these more psychological ideas and develop psychoanalysis, he kind of all along thought that, you know, one day we will be able to kind of map all of this neurologically and he started trying to do that himself. He started writing this book called A Project for a Scientific Psychology, one of his earliest books, in which he basically was trying to scientifically or neurologically map everything he was kind of developing Mm -hmm. in psychoanalysis. And in the end he had to abandon it because he thought it wasn't possible yet or the science wasn't there yet. And he then at that point sort of abandoned neurology and went more down the the psychological route that we know him for. But I think that something really interesting happened in that, in that something about it started off from this point of him thinking the body and the mind were kind of doing the same thing in a way, but due to the demands of disciplines and language and they kind of had to get separated off. And nowadays there's a, Group of researchers or a school of thought Mm. being developed called neuropsychoanalysis, where people are trying to do basically what Freud wants to do and where people are kind of mapping psychoanalytic ideas onto neurology and neuroscience and trying to think about them in a more biological way. And I think, but I think it's not to say that things need to be mapped out neuroscientifically to make them true or worthwhile I think that's really important for me anyway to to note but I just think it's really interesting to think back to that that time you know the birth of psychoanalysis and really that's what gave us the whole idea of of therapy of of talking therapy and and it's and it's roots in in neurology and essentially in the body really
0: yeah there's uh, I'm kind of flicking here because um, in recent years Uh, there's a fascinating book uh, called The Body Keeps the Score, Mind, Brain and Body in uh, the Transformation of Trauma by a guy called Bessel van der Kolk Um, and uh, this is a subject that's of interest to me because of my work raising funds for a charity called Combat Stress where they deal with guys suffering from PTSD, guys and women, uh, dealing with uh, PTSD uh sustained during combat or sometimes not even combat operations you know because being in the armed forces is a dangerous business even at the best of times and and that i find really interesting i didn't know that about freud Mm. uh but there and of course there is now as well there's a lot of uh work being done about uh things like the gut brain and so forth uh there's in fact aren't there three there's the there's the brain brain there's the gut brain and something of the heart brain something of that kind mm-hmm. uh where people are finding there's these clusters of nerves and stuff feeding information and you know swapping information um so uh for example uh we and i know this is true uh I sometimes get hangry, as I would call it. I get kind of grumpy, a bit kind of, uh, and then realise I'm just really hungry. I need to eat something, and as soon as I eat something, I feel much better. And there's a clear example where it's nothing to do with the brain that's inside my head. It's it's whatever's going on inside my gut mm. is affecting my. And I think isn't the word is creating. Affect. Mm. I think that's the technical term. Uh, there's, and there's a difference between affect and emotion. Uh, this is a subject we'll get into in much greater detail in, in other shows, folks. But that this is something that I do find really interesting, that, uh, that in a in sense what you're saying is that Freud was already noticing this kind of thing back in uh, well, he was alive end of the 19th century, mm. right? Yeah. And it's almost like being rediscovered by scientists now?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think the gut link in particular is interesting and I think there is a clear link Or things like, you know, feeling sick when you're nervous, say, or responding in your stomach with whatever feelings of sickness in response to some emotional experience. Yeah.
0: I think it's true to say that most of us always, you know, say, oh, okay, if you feel stressed, where do you feel it? Oh, my gut, you Mm. know, I can tell. Oh... Uh, if you're feeling anxious with if oh my chest, you know, oh gosh, you know, my heart. Mm. And it's quite interesting. It's almost like this kind of uh folklore may well be based in fact. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Mm. Uh, interesting stuff. Again, a whole program could be dedicated to that kind of thing. Now let's talk about something that I know we're both interested in because your your PhD was uh Uh, talking about the relationship between modernist literature, neurology, psychoanalysis and psychology uh, you were very specific. The period covered 1860 to 1939. That's a real PhD thesis title. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I know. So my uh, year abroad dissertation when I was at Sussex University was uh, the Reichswehr and politics in Bavaria 1918 to 1923. It, they're very, very specific slices of stuff, people. Anyway, that sounds fascinating because uh, I know, and this leads us into... Uh, you're really interested in stories and narrative and that kind of thing which we're going to talk some more about now so tell us about your that phd and kind of what it revealed for you obviously sent you on this journey to wanting to become a you know psychotherapist but tell us about uh, your interest in stories and narrative and that kind of thing go on
2: well
1: i think so in my PhD, I was looking at four modernist writers. I looked at Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence and Anais Nin and H.D., who's probably less well-known. Right. She was a, a poet and she wrote a lot of autobiographical novels. But all of them, I was researching their either autobiographical novels, um, their diaries, their letters, or you know pieces of writing in which they were expressing their own life
2: stories. Mm.
1: whatever way you know sometimes in more coded ways than others Mm. and i love that period of of literature but i got particularly interested in the times when people were yeah explicitly or or less explicitly writing about themselves Mm. and and i think you know part of of that then becomes how much of that is created It's, it's sort of interesting thinking about somebody taking the raw materials of their life and then expressing that in in a narrative form because Mm. I suppose in putting your life into words in a way you have to kind of form it into a shape to be able to express it coherently Mm. and I think then in that in that PhD I was really interested in how how the scientific psychological ideas of the time that were around kind of fed into those people's self-expressions mm-hmm. and how that affected the ways they thought of themselves and then the ways that they expressed themselves and at the same time i was interested in how sometimes without necess- you know without direct awareness although often with direct awareness the ideas they were the same ideas being expressed in mm. the literature as in the the science or the psychology mm.
0: now that's really interesting because uh what you were talking about there the way that people kind of create their own narrative, create their own story uh this is something that I've become really fascinated with myself um, in respects relationships in particular mm. and uh one of the things that you know I'm prepared to talk about is I you know I had a bit of a breakdown earlier this year in January uh when uh, it became clear that a very dear friend of mine and myself had very different stories of our friendship and when that became apparent it was a total shock
2: uh,
0: there's a, a wonderful guy called Rick Hansen who's written a brilliant book called Resilient which is on my shelf over there somewhere but I'd recommend it wholeheartedly to anyone who's listening to this you know I, 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 there aren't many books that I just straight off the cuff would say if you want to understand yourself in your life and be able to cope better that's a book you need to read and one of the things that he talks about in the book is that uh, every time uh, something is left unsaid because you don't want to upset the other person or you know create aggravation, every time something's left unsaid, it's like a stone being dropped in the water between two boats. Mm. And you're in one boat, and the other person is in the other boat, and you think that you're sailing in parallel, but these stones dropped in the water just push you, nudge you slightly further apart, and then another unsaid thing nudges you slightly further apart, and before you know it, you're actually sailing in different directions, mm. you know, and that that difference at the beginning may only be like half a degree of difference, but over time it becomes. 5 degrees 10 degrees 45 and before you know it it's like what the heck happened to our relationship mm. and uh it it can happen too late that you realize actually we have nothing in common anymore actually we've had very different stories of our relationship one person may be convinced this must this is the most perfect relationship i've ever been in and the other person's thinking my God, one more thing from him. I'm just getting... I'm so pissed off. I can't take it anymore. I'm off.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's at that moment that the trauma can occur. And it's, uh, it was at that... Fortunately, it wasn't. hadn't gone quite that far in my case with my dear friend, and we've been able to repair the relationship. But uh, it came pretty close, and it came as a real shock to realise that my story mm-hmm. of the friendship was totally different from her story of the friendship
2: mm.
0: now that's an interesting thing isn't it susie where we kind of cast ourselves as the hero of the story or the director of the movie of our own life isn't mm. it and that we create a narrative of what things are like why bit why because it suits us because it's convenient because it's easier that way it's easier not to notice the little splashes in the water what what do you think about that susie
1: well i think what you said is really interesting and i and you know i think it's important for us to listen to other people's Hmm. stories and other people's narratives of of what's going on you know when we can Hmm. and i think in terms of my own experience as a psychodynamic therapist I think often what I can be doing with clients Mm. is working together with them to help them create their own narrative, you know, Mm. in a way that makes sense. And Mm. often you're going back to what I said about uncovering unconscious things, but Mm. that could be thought of similarly as that sort of a stone dropped or something that's been unsaid. And
2: Mm.
1: I don't know, maybe that's something about somebody's own experience or their life Mm. that they haven't been able to put into words or they haven't been able to integrate mm. into their kind of life story and mm. working together to try and do that and try and help that client create their own story in a way that makes sense to them mm. and helping them to make those links between the past and the present and often thinking about you know how things were in the past and how that could be linked to how things are now in the present and in helping them to sort of make those connections and put that narrative together
0: yeah so i suppose what you're trying to do is help them make sense of their own life Mm. yeah and um i mean because i i can relate to that because i uh i know i've got big blank gaps um from my early childhood uh, I mean, I don't know at what age people start having conscious memory. I mean, I can vaguely remember sitting on a tractor seat when I was about three or four years old at some sort of big do. That made an impression on me, on me obviously. And But not a great deal, I would say, between the ages of about six and 11, maybe even 12, there are kind of chunks of my life missing you know it's really weird because uh, after my mum died in 2016 we had to do the usual thing of oh go and clear out the attic and see what was there my dad was a brilliant photographer he was actually a, uh, a professional photographer for a time and um took loads of photographs back in the days when there was mostly black and white photographs and it's very strange finding a photograph of yourself and well, OK, I can see that's me. I recognise that that's me in that photograph. Mm. But having no recollection whatsoever of the event mm. or the people. Very, very strange. And I, th- I think there's a kind of significance of black and white, actually. Because I remember, gosh, years ago, Paul McKenna, uh, who's into a thing called uh, NLP, Neuro programming who had a tv series that was all about helping cure people of phobias and helping them get over traumas and that kind of stuff it was really interesting actually and um one of the things he would do if if someone had like a really really bad memory or something you know they've been traumatized by you know a dog that attacked them or something of that kind uh One of the things you do is kind of sit them down in the theatre of their mind and say, right, okay. so first of all, what I want you to do is, uh, you know, you remember the event. It's, you know, full Technicolor and it's all, you know, blaringly loud and that kind of stuff. Right now, stage one was take the colour out of the picture imagine it as if it was in black and white and immediately that puts you at one remove from the events then he went further and so right play it in reverse and have have everyone involved in it talking silly voices you know and so it goes from being this big nasty overwhelmingly traumatizing thing to being this little silly thing that's almost insignificant and you can get on with your life really interesting and i have to say it kind of worked uh but i'm coming from the other direction where i've got the black and white stuff Mm. and i have no color i have no kind of vivid memory of those events that's uh an interesting kind of aspect of where you feel like okay you've got the illustration in the book but there's no narrative around the illustration right
1: yeah so i you know i suppose that could be something to think that you could build your narrative around that photograph. Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, what, what I suppose what people would be wondering is, okay, you're building this narrative. Does it matter if it's a true narrative or an imaginary narrative? I mean, w- w- what's the story about that?
1: Well, you know, I suppose my response to that would be, what is a true narrative or, or an imaginary narrative? and, and how can we say where the line is of course there are true events and that mm. happened in the world but people's responses to them and people's emotional experiences are by definition kind of subjective mm. um which i think is a different kind of truth
0: yeah talk a bit about that please you've mentioned the kind of emotional the emotional aspect in there because one of the reasons I suppose people would go for therapy is that they feel that they're overwhelmed by mm. emotion and not in control of their emotional life, which is what they're finding traumatic or troubling or you know, stressful. Can you talk to us a bit about how you as a therapist help people in that way, to try and take back control of their emotional life?
1: Well, I suppose our emotional life they aren't it isn't always something we can control and
2: Mm.
1: of course you might work with a client to help them feel that things are more manageable and less overwhelming Mm. but sometimes our emotions are out of our control and Mm. um, you know that might be something to think about as well but Mm. I think that sense of stopping things feeling overwhelming i suppose and it can be a long process but that Mm -hmm. working through things to make them make sense um, Mm and can be part of that and i think you know freud wrote a piece called remembering repeating and working through and i think the idea in that is that you know there are things that you remember
2: Mm
1: -hmm. consciously and there are some things that maybe you're not totally aware that you remember but that will be aspects of your experience that perhaps you keep on repeating Mm -hmm. in the present and you don't necessarily like those patterns Mm -hmm. and that then you can hopefully through working through the links or working through the story of how you got to be repeating this behavior Mm -hmm. hopefully be enabled to kind of move past it or deal with it in a way in which you are in more control because Mm. you kind of understand what's going on better
0: yeah because in terms of the story aspect uh i suppose what's interesting there is that we tend to think of a narrative as it's got a beginning a middle and an end one of the problems that people can have is they start ruminating and just everything's on replay automatic Mm -hmm. replay how do you break that cycle for someone
1: i think it might differ from person to person um and i think sometimes maybe you just need to go through it you know mm. a lot of times to mm. to be able to move past it mm.
0: yeah um i mean is there anything else you wanted to add about you know the the these aspects of um stories? And the way that we attach stories to our own lives, um, and because uh, one of the things that you know that that uh, I learned from my own experience is that yeah, much as I think I'm a nice guy and I pay attention to other people and stuff, it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own mm-hmm. story and completely miss, as I was saying, this fact that. The, this other the significant other in a particular situation mm. has a totally different story mm. um a kind of self-awareness thing you know it's very easy that you've know, got busy lives you oh, know focus it's, it's much easier to just oh i'm just going to focus on my shit and you know plow ahead
2: mm. but
0: in terms of relationships of course that can be disastrous can't it
1: well and you know people always talk about communication being the mm. You know the fundamental thing in a relationship mm. and i think from your own experience you've talked about you know what can happen perhaps if things aren't communicated mm. but i think another thing going back to therapy that can be helpful about that relationship the therapeutic relationship mm. is communication within that relationship yeah. might help people to learn about times they might hold things back or yeah. that might be a context in which someone might try out saying Actually, it really annoyed me yesterday (laughs) when you did said this or
2: um,
1: and that could be something that's hard for some people to do. And therapy, that could be a part of therapy that, you know, could end up being helpful to somebody as well.
0: It's really interesting you mentioned that because I think perhaps certainly amongst British people, one of the things that I get the impression is most often suppressed is anger Mm. as an emotion. And we bottle it up with, oh, you know, you must get angry. That's you. No, 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 you must do that. And there are there are ways of expressing anger that can be injurious, obviously, and demolish a relationship right there and there and on the spot. But there, there, there are other ways aren't there, that you can express the fact that you've been upset or made angry by a situation without it i mean what uh, what kind of tips could you give as a you know as we're closing the show Mm. what kind of tips could you give about how people could cope with dealing with anger in a more positive way
1: i suppose expressing it i think you know like i've said saying if something makes you angry probably and Mm. and not bottling it up you know that might be easier said than done and i know that you sort of saying advice isn't you know isn't always easy because habits might be kind of you know long-term or whatever but I think realizing that it's okay to be angry and that Mm. it's okay to say if if you're angry or you know if something you don't like something and, and I suppose being able to express that rather than Keeping
0: it inside, bottled up. Yeah, because I think, uh, f- from my point of view, I think the key is you can express it to the other person in a way that isn't accusatory. Mm. Oh, you're always like that. You know. I think yes, if you if you make it clear that you know when you did that, I felt this, gives the other person time to respond and think about. Oh, gosh, was that the effect that that had on that person? Oh oh, yeah, sorry about that, Mm. gives them the opportunity to then kind of apologise for that rather than feeling like they'd just be pushed right onto the back foot from the first moment, yeah? Mm. Um, I think that, uh, and this is where, from my own experience, you know, as I say, the kind of mindfulness aspect of things is just think of ways of, you know, go ahead and express yourself, but in a way that doesn't necessarily make someone feel like they've got a gun pointing at their head, you know? these are, these are not easy things, We all, but we all have to deal with it.
2: Yeah.
0: Susie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant. I, I, Frankly, I could have talked for twice this length of time, but probably with us up here in the steaming oven of the attic studio, I ought to release you back into the outside world and the and cool breeze. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fascinating.
1: Thanks for having me. You're
0: welcome. And I'm sure that the subject matter that uh, we've talked about today will pop up again. Thanks, Susan. Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, number two. I hope you enjoyed the first one, which was basically an introduction to meditation, demythologizing some of the things that you might have believed were necessary in order to meditate, and showing you that in fact, meditation can be whatever you want it to be. And we looked at how and whether to sit or stand or lie down, whether to meditate with your eyes open or closed, and a number of other things that I hope meant that you came away feeling, oh, this is easier than I thought. And don't be fooled, meditation is one of those things that's kind of easy, but mastering it, truly mastering it, can take a lifetime. Maybe you will need to make that trip to the Tibetan monastery. But anyway, today, now that you've grasped the basics, we're going to do something a bit different. And we're going to look at the notion of whether you have to empty your brain When you meditate, is it necessary to just be in a complete Zen state of total blankness when you meditate? Well, that's something that might take a lifetime. And in any case, it's not necessary. Meditation takes into account the realities of our life, the reality of our brains, the reality of our minds. And the reality is... We can't stop our brain from doing stuff. I certainly can't. But what we can do is prevent our thoughts, our emotions from taking us over. We can separate ourselves from our thoughts and from our emotions. So what I'd like you to do... Settle down into whatever position you've decided you like the best that you find the most comfortable. So you might be standing, you might be sitting or sitting cross-legged on a cushion or lying down on the floor on a mat or lying down on your bed, wherever you're most comfortable. And you decide whether you want to close your eyes or whether you want to leave your eyes open, but if they are open, kind of a soft gaze. Let them go kind of fuzzy. Don't get distracted by any detail anywhere. All right? So, you're comfortable, and what we're going to do is we're going to just take one big breath in, and slowly let it out. And as we let that breath out, Just let any tension in your body just flow out from you with the breath as you exhale. All right? So, big breath in. And out. Okay, you feel nice and relaxed and you've settled into your Chosen place. And then just focus on your home base. Did you decide that it was the breath moving in and out of your nostrils? Did you decide it was the sensation of your rib cage, your abdomen rising and falling as you inhale and exhale? Maybe you decided that it was the sensation of your body where it is sitting or lying down, that sense of gravity pulling you down, whatever you like. I'm going to do what I usually do, which is focus on the breath, that sensation just below the nostrils, in that kind of area of the, I think it's called the cupid's bow, isn't it, on the top lip, where the breath comes in, and then goes out. Okay. Now today, you're not going to hear as much from me. Stop cheering and clapping, that's just rude, okay? But you are, you're going to hear less from me because I'm going to leave you in peace at various times. Because what we're going to do today is imagine that we're lying on this beautiful, is it a tropical beach? Is it a Mediterranean beach? with a clear blue sky above us and the warm soft sand underneath us and we're looking up at the sky and every time a thought or some kind of emotional impulse comes into our head we're going to imagine it's just a little puff of white Cloud in that pure blue sky. But instead of being pulled away and getting involved with a white cloud, we're just going to imagine that there's a really soft breeze blowing across our skin. From left to right or right to left, you decide. And it just softly moves that cloud away. And as the cloud moves away, you return to your home base. You return to your breath. And the thought fades away. Okay. So let's just try that. Let's just see. how long it'll be before some kind of little thought, distraction, pops into your head and distracts you from your breathing, your soft breathing. And let's just see if you can separate yourself from that thought. Imagine it as just a little cloud up there in the blue sky. But you remain focused on the blue sky. And the cloud just moves away slowly. Okay. See if you can do that. Good. How are you getting on? It can be surprising, can't it? How many thoughts can pop into your head in the space of just a couple of minutes? Do you feel you can do a bit more? Are you finding that easy? That your thoughts are just clouds, they're separate. The real you, underneath your real being, is the blue sky and your home base. Thoughts are just stuff. If they're important thoughts, like, oh, I think I left the oven on. Well, okay, you have my permission to do something about that, but... If it's an anxiety about something that's happened in the past or something that might happen in the future, how can we tell? Just let it go. Just imagine that it floats away out of your vision and your eyes remain fixed on that beautiful clear blue sky. You can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. And those little clouds just vaporize and float away. And you come back to the breath. You come back to the blue sky. And those clouds don't have to trouble you for the time you're spending here with me. They can just go away. So, here we go. Let's have another go. I'll leave you in peace for a bit, see how you get on. Great. How are you feeling? Okay. How did you find that interesting? Has that shown you that you can let your thoughts go? You can let them float away. They don't have to take you over. We are not our thoughts. Our brain would like us to think we are constant chatter that we often have inside our heads. But in fact we can separate ourselves just by focusing on the breathing and imagining our thoughts as something separate that can just float away when we want them to. Okay. So, let's take one big deep breath again together. In, uh, and out. Let yourself have a stretch. Slowly open your eyes. Have a yawn if you want to. I hope you've enjoyed this practice together. We'll do some more of this proving that we don't have to be dominated by our own thoughts in a future relaxation on the beach. In the meantime, thank you for spending your time with me. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's helped you to relax. I hope it's helped you to face the rest of your day. So I'll see you next time. In the meantime... Be well.
2: This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright
0: Henry Hyde, 2021.